Hey everyone, Steve here. Often our guests will send us a couple copies of their books and sometimes they're signed. We want to get those books in your hands. So just wanted to let you know, we created a page at our website for you all to win a weekly book giveaway. Go to eternalleadership.com slash book and there you can register. It's eternalleadership.com slash book. We'll have that link in the summary of this MP3 as well. That's eternalleadership.com slash book. Thanks. My wife's asleep next to me and I, I wake her up and I say, Marianne, and she's like, what? <laughs> and I go, I really think God is telling me to leave Eco Lab and he wants me to leave tomorrow. And she goes, great. And she turns back over and goes to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I'm sorry. And I tap her. I said, man, I'm going to need a little more than that. And she goes, what? She goes, why are you hesitant? She goes, this is what you've been praying for. It's clear direction for the last nine months. And she goes, that sounds pretty clear to me. And she didn't stop there. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, Director of Marketing at Halftime Institute, Paul McGinnis. Now, if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you know that Eternal Leadership has partnered with Halftime Institute in getting a free copy of Bob Buford's seminal book, Halftime, into your hands. The subtitle of Halftime is Moving from Success to Significance, and it's all about taking lessons from the first half of life, making adjustments, much like I did as a high school football coach, and then really making a kingdom impact in that second half. When this book came out in 1993, it met a felt need for baby boomers who were feeling this unrelenting, smoldering discontent and wanted to make more of a difference in the world. Now it's really starting to touch Gen Xers and baby boomers who have realized that their halftime could be retirement. It's a great book and you can get a free copy at eternalleadership.com slash halftime. That's eternalleadership.com slash halftime. And after you read the book, if you have any questions, you can also get a free, no obligation, one hour of halftime coaching. Can't beat it eternalleadership.com slash halftime. Now, Paul McGinnis had his own halftime journey that led him to become the director of marketing at halftime. We heard a little bit of that teaser at the top. I won't spoil the story. This is one of my top five favorite stories we've aired thus far. It's a little bit longer than normal, but you're really going to want to listen to it. Here's how my partner, John Ramstead, and I got that conversation started. All right. Today on Eternal Leadership Podcast, we have a great friend of the show, a great personal friend of mine, Paul McGinnis. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Uh, Paul's just become a great friend of uh, both you and I, Steve. And uh, um, Paul, you and I first met when I went through halftime. Uh, you were one of the facilitators uh, of the two-day deep dive that I did down there for me, which was just life-changing. And as I got to know you and heard your whole life story and just how you've uh, just what you've done uh, with not only how God created you, what he gave you, what you've done in business and your relationships, and just really what you're doing to just sow life and value into other people. Uh, it's just been a privilege to get to know you, and I'm really excited to have you on and just share today. So uh, I'd love to just start and just turn this over to you and just share a little bit about your journey and your background so people can get to know you the way uh, Steve and I have gotten to know you. Sure. Well, I appreciate it. I was telling Steve earlier, I just heard his podcast as well, and what you guys are doing is absolutely amazing. And I talked to a client of the Halftime Institute the other day, and he said, I listen to every single podcast when it comes uh, who, out. Who is and that? We're going to write him a thank you note. <laughs> I, I, will, I, will tell you, I will tell you offline, but yeah, he was, he was thrilled, and he said, just thank you for providing those resources. So just want to pass that along. It's just been fabulous for cool. 
a lot of people, but specifically our clients have really enjoyed it. That's awesome. Well, Paul, talk about yourself. Well, you know, I was raised not too far from you guys. I was out down in the southwest corner of Colorado in Durango, outside of Durango at Viacito Lake. So some of you may know where that is and uh, was blessed to be raised in a wonderful Christian family. And uh, what was it was great because my parents, of course, were Christians, but my extended family was Christian. And uh, that's a blessing that as I've gotten older is is not normal. Uh, I kind of was raised in that, so I thought it was normal. But um, just as the older I've gotten, the, the more I realize how incredible that is. And so what was amazing about that is here I had this incredible blessing of being raised by a Christian family, but some significant spiritual milestones that occurred as a child that I think God really used to cement in me this spiritual journey at a very young age. And there are several of those, but I'll try to keep it to two just to, for your listener's sake. But one was I was nine years old, and I got off the bus. I had about an hour bus ride from my, my elementary school. And usually I'm, I was with my big sister, but she wasn't there for some reason. I don't remember why. And I'm walking home, and it's about a mile and a half journey down a dirt road to my, my house. And I remember I'm just walking, minding my own business. At least I, that's how I remember it. And uh, all of a sudden, this German shepherd comes at me from about, I don't know, 200 feet away. And it's just, it's just running at me like it's going to attack me. And I just remember saying, in the name of Jesus, get away. And the, the dog turned around as if I had shot it and started just whelping, you know, and then just ran the other direction. And, Are you kidding and, me? No, I'm not kidding you. And, and I'm like, I didn't ever plan that. My parents didn't teach me, hey, you know, just in case something comes at you like a dog, just name in, you know, yell in the name of Jesus and it'll be fine. It just, it just was a Holy Spirit thing as a nine-year-old. And I remember that day thinking, wow, this thing, this, this person called God must be real. And I remember in my nine-year-old mind thinking, wow, this, what my parents are saying and what I'm hearing must be real because look at what, that, what just happened. And so fast forward about four years, I'm 13 years old, and uh, we're in a car. We're in a Datsun 310GX, for those of you that may remember that. And it was a hatchback, you know, and we're driving to Grand Junction, Colorado. My sister just got her permit. Are you wearing leather driving gloves? I was not. I was not wearing, I might have been wearing parachute pants, um, but I was not wearing leather driving gloves. And um, my sister's driving, my mom's in the front seat, my dad and I are in the back, and and this is before seatbelt laws, of course, and we lay down the back seat and we're laying down asleep, you know, under the hatchback of that Datsun 310GX. And we're going along this two-lane highway, about 65, and there's a car on the side of the road that had pulled over. And right as my sister passed it, it decided to do a U-turn, and it didn't see us. And it clipped the back end of the car where my dad and I were, spun us around, and then we flipped four times, landed about 100 feet off the road on a barbed wire fence upside down. Same thing is while we were in that wreck, while we were rolling, my entire family, four of us, were just shouting in the name of Jesus. And... We came out of that wreck. My mom broke her nose. My sister got two stitches just in the corner of her eye. And my dad and I weren't hurt at all. And we were laying down in the back, no seatbelt, under a hatchback. And so, Paul, what did the car look like? Oh, it was was horrible. In fact, the, the cop, when he asked, there were four witnesses to this wreck. And he said, well, 
did it roll? And they said, all of them said four times. And he said, well, that's impossible because for every roll, typically one person dies. And the witnesses were going, no. And then my dad spoke up and he said, officer, that is what happened. And you just need to know that we prayed. And again, we didn't plan, hey, if we're getting a wreck, let's all shout in the name of Jesus. It was just these things that it just happened. And so just those two events, there were some others, but just those two for me just cemented the fact that there is a God and he cares about me. And then he has a purpose for my life. I felt like I was spared from a, from a dog attack, and I was spared through this wreck. And that really, really helped me as I, as I journeyed into adulthood to just know that, that this, is a, this is real. And I have a responsibility to, to follow him and, and have an incredible love relationship with him. Hey, Paul, after that accident happened, and I'm just imagining the first family dinner when you're all back from the hospital and being checked out, <laughs> and you're all sitting there, you know, having your chicken dinner, and what was that conversation? You know, it was it was a conversation that was both ends of the spectrum, kind of unbelief, which sounds really bad, right, is, can you believe God saved us from this, um, to just emotion, just I, I can't believe that we were unscathed in this, that we could have all lost our lives. Um, it could have been so much worse, those kind of things. So it was this extreme emotion of kind of unbelief and disbelief, but yet extreme emotion of just thank you, God, and gratitude. It was absolutely amazing and obviously changed our whole family's lives, but especially mine. So, uh, you know, as you think back on that, um, what, from that experience, what did you bring in as you're growing up, you're going through middle school? high school, how did that kind of inform your, your worldview and how you just started thinking about what's next? Yeah, I think for me, it was just early on, and I, I don't think I would have worded this back then when I was 14, 15 years old, but looking back, I think there was just this sense that God has a plan for my life early on. Um, and that shaped a lot of things. It shaped decisions I made through high school. And I, I didn't have that wild, crazy period of life like so many of us do, whether it's in high school or college. I, I just, it, I think it grounded me. I mean, obviously my parents, there was tons of things that helped me have a, a solid foundation. But those two specific events, I think, just kept me grounded. And I would remember those times as a 16, 17-year-old and just remember how God spared me. And I really had this feeling that God spared me for a reason, and that I better be about finding out what that is and being responsible and doing my best with this opportunity. So as you think about that, God spared you for a reason. Is that, inform- is that really sunk in? Um, wh- what did that do for you as you, you know, went through college, decided what to do with your life, you know, made some of these decisions you talk about? So I went to college in, in Texas. And so I left Colorado and, and went to Texas, went to college. And Met my wife, Marianne, and we got married very early on. She was 19, I was 20, and then somehow got pregnant the sixth month of our marriage. And uh, so we had a child in college. And so we were, we were required to grow up very fast. And uh, I remember going to intramural football games, and my, my wife's on the sideline with a, you know, a newborn. <laughs> and uh, so we didn't have that buffer of five years without kids or whatever that magic buffer is. And I think it's just, as I've seen that, because we started so early in that process, everything is sped up. And I I hit things that maybe a 26-year-old would hit, but I was 22. And so, and now we're empty nesters and I'm 44 years old. So I'm just kind of a little bit ahead of everybody just because of the way it's worked. And 
I think God's really used that in a lot of ways um, just to inform me on my own spirituality, our relationship with our kids, those kind of things. And, and it, it spilled over you know, after college as well as I began my career. So what was that career? What did that look like? Well, I, I left uh, college and I, I worked at the university for a couple years, but uh, I moved, we moved to Arlington, Texas, and I worked for Guidestone Financial, and that's the, the Southern Baptist arm, financial arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. So um, they do all the retirement and insurance plans for a lot of Baptist entities. So that was my first real job. And I was there 10 years, and I had nine different jobs. So it was one of those things that was just, it was crazy fun, but crazy as well, and had additional roles and responsibilities. Absolutely loved it. Great organization. And then I left that organization, and I went to a small Christian-run business in Fort Worth. And I was on their executive team, and then we were purchased by Ecolab, a big chemical company based out of St. Paul, Minnesota, six months after I started. So I thought I was going to a small Christian-run business, and then pretty soon I was part of a Fortune 250 company. So that was a, a bit of a transition. But the 10 years I spent at Ecolab, um, I was able to get to a point where I was vice president of marketing for Ecolab's food safety division. And that's a division in Las Colinas. And just incredible blessing of just different roles and responsibilities, a great group of people to work with, a great company to be a part of. Um, and, and did that for quite a few years until some things occurred that I would say triggered this uh, season of halftime that, that you and many of your guests have talked about over the last few months on your podcasts. You know, one of the things we talk about on this podcast a lot is really kind of some of the what and the how of leadership. And there's some things about you, though, about uh, who a leader should be. You know, who who was it that you were being as a leader that allowed you to rise so quickly inside of a such a large company? You know, I think for me, I, I had some incredible mentors in my life um, at, in the workplace. Uh, two specifically at uh, Guidestone, Barbara and Jim were just, they were just people that said, there's potential in you. You know, you're kind of young and stupid, but there's potential in you. And, <laughs> and uh, we want, it, we want to take you under our wing. And it was just phenomenal. I remember one time she said, you know, I have a goal for you next year. And I said, what is it? She goes, you just need to get older. And I said, I said, well, what does that mean? She goes, you need, to, you need to plan a budget and it fails miserably. You need to hire somebody you think is a rock star and they're absolutely horrible. You just need to go through life because I was so young. And, and I got it. At the, at the time, I didn't get it. And then now I began to understand it a little bit. So for me, it was – it was this thing of they really taught me, and, and, and also at Ecolab, but my mentors at Ecolab, but was really to be reflective um, that leadership is about influence. It's not about a position. It's not about a title. And those things just really helped me. Every time I moved to a different position, I, I, would, I would write down saying, what did I learn? What did I do really well? What did I just I, – I just stunk it up. It was just not good. And say, okay, now if I have a new position with a new team. I can turn over that leaf. I can start fresh. And, and doing that 9, 10, 12 times, you know, um, I'm not perfect by any means, but I was able to get better incrementally over time. And uh, that, was just, that was just a real good learning for me. What were some of the key lessons that you learned there, Paul? Um, well, I think, I think one of them was the balance between how close you get to your employees. You know, as a young manager, I remember my, my goal was to be their best friend. Mm-hmm. 
And there's a lot of bear traps in that scenario of, of, uh, of doing that. And so over time, learning the balance of, of being a leader and caring for your employees, which is natural for me as a, as a, as a natural coach and a, a developer and a relator, but also having that balance where you can be disciplined and you can give constructive criticism and you can do those things that, um, you know, if you're a good friend, it's tough to do. But if you're a, a solid leader and manager, you're able to do that. And so that was probably one of the biggest things I learned is just be careful on that line that you create between you and your team um, because many times I overstep that. You know, there, there's a lot of people. I, I think, you know, what you're sharing right there is something that, that comes up a lot. You know, how, how do we draw that line, you know, between really, you know, we want that acceptance and those relationships with the people that are working for us, right? We might not have those with some of our peers because some of those relationships are competitive because some, you know, where people are trying to move up. So what, what are some specifics there that, that you might want to share with somebody? You know, for me, I, I learned the importance of, as a leader, at, at whatever level, but especially you know, at more of a, a higher level, you have to have a community around you. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be at the workplace, but I just realized I needed two or three individuals that were obviously weren't on my team that I could just, I could bounce these things off. Say, man, I'm having a really frustrating time with this person on my team, or they're brilliant, you know, they're very competent, but they're just a jerk to work with. You know, how can I get around this? How can I do this? And so to have to have some people that you can really uh, invest in and they invest in you, you can bounce things off, There's, there, it's a safe place to be. And that hasn't changed in any of my career, even what I'm doing today. But, but to have that uh, community around you has been huge for me. And uh, I think that's probably been one of the biggest things. <laughs> where, where did you find that community, Paul? You know, for me, um, uh, I had three really close friends um, that – Two of them were businessmen. One of them was in a nonprofit and um, came out of the business world. And uh, for for me, we do exactly what we're doing today. We're Skyping back and forth and just saying, hey, what do you think? And so I had three or four individuals at any given time that I was able to find outside of the company I currently serve. I had mentors within the company, but outside of the company that didn't know the politics, that didn't know the all the organizational behavior that went on that could just speak truth from Scripture and from their own experience that wasn't tainted and, and was um, unfiltered. And now, Paul, you've brought up the term mentor multiple times as you've talked about how you've had this career that worked for you. What are some things when you were looking for a mentor that worked well, and what are some things that just fell flat? Um. I think the, the, the finding a mentor is a really key piece. You know, you can go to a seminar or you could read an article and say, wow, I need to find a mentor. And you just, you look for anybody that's five years older and you say, hey, would you do it? And if they're willing, you say yes. And then you have this happy relationship. And I've, I've had many of those where um, it just wasn't the right fit. And I think what I've learned is it's really a, a prayerful decision. It's something that that your mentor has to believe in. There has to be some level of camaraderie for that to work. Because if you just force feed it, um, it becomes stale after two, three, four sessions, whenever you meet with them. And I think for somebody that they really see who you are and they believe in you and for you to also believe in that mentor, um, I think that's probably one of the biggest things I've learned is, is don't just go find a mentor that may be willing. Find a mentor that's a good fit for you, that that is strong where you are weak, 
uh, and those kind of things so that you can actually sharpen each other. Well, what, what is a good fit? You know, one that's willing to take the time to spin with you. Uh, and that could be in a, a variety of ways. It could be over coffee on a regular basis, over Skype, or just a phone call. So one that truly is willing to carve out the margin to spend time with you. Um, I think one, again, that I need a mentor that is strong where I'm weak. It, it does no good for me to have somebody that's that's has the same strengths I do because uh, I – I want to develop some of those other areas as well. And so that, I think that was, that was a key part too. And, you know, somebody for me too, that, I mean, that was in love with Jesus. I mean, so much of this mentorship was not just business. It was, it was that, that parallel path of the the business world and the spiritual world. You know, it's not this, it's not this compartmentalized thing, which we tend to do that it's all one and how to flow into that. And so it was somebody that, that I think you need to be able to respect spiritually as well that needs to be at a, a spiritual maturity level greater than yours so that you can grow in both of those things, not just not just one area. Yeah, I remember a time I was at a, a Fortune 50 company, and one of the guys who was much senior to me wanted to mentor me, but he had he was, not, he was on his fourth marriage. Yeah. And I remember talking to Don about this. I said, you know what? What, what has made him successful in business? I don't think I want to know. Because if I understand, if I am taking advice from somebody that has these other fruit on his tree, these other results, I'm probably going to get the same results. Yeah. And it was a very difficult conversation mm. to actually not engage with this person who wanted to mentor me because he wanted to see me actually promoted into an area of the company that uh, w- would then be reporting for him. Yeah. But I, yeah. Think, I think, you know, understanding why you want to have a mentor um, some of those principles that you just talked about, but I think it's, uh, I just want to echo your point that it's, that you need to understand where the, the, the mentor that you're getting, uh, look at the fruit on their tree in every aspect of their life. And is that something you want to have in your life? Exactly. Yeah, I would agree. So now as you, as you went up this career, uh, I know you, you grew to some very senior levels at Ecolab and some things were going wonderfully and you guys you, you and I have talked before you just got to this point where you just felt totally unfulfilled although or, uh, professionally uh, probably people were looking at you saying this, this guy could not be doing any better um, take us from that point well you know looking back um, I think my halftime season was really triggered by a lot of times this is this happens to people it's triggered by tragedy and for me in 2007, my dad was my dad and mom were in a car accident. My dad was killed uh, instantly, and my mom was in ICU for 30 days, and then in rehab for another 30 days. And and you know, obviously tragic. And what what happened in that with with all of us that have experienced tragedy, and you hear about it with with your podcast all the time, is is um, you ask all your all these questions come to your mind. And from a Christian worldview, of course, it's you know, why God and where were you, God? And hey, we prayed for safety on the trip. Why did this happen? I mean, you have all those, and I definitely had those. But there were some other questions that kept just kind of penetrating my soul. And it was my dad's uh, death. And then soon after that, my mother in law died in her sleep suddenly. We had a friend that was 40 years old that died from cancer. We had a cancer scare with my daughter who was 10. We had a son that kind of went his own way for a few years. It was just like this three-year period of just what in the world is going on. And what that created in me was two questions that kept 
just again just sitting on my soul and one was um what's my purpose and it, and it wasn't at the high level i mean i understood my purpose as a human is to glorify god and to pursue people i mean i understood that but what is what is paul's purpose how do i live that out every day and so i was beginning to wrestle with that and then the other question was am i making a difference specifically am i making a kingdom difference and so as I was commuting back and forth to work, I had an hour trip one way, so two hours a day. And I, 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 as I was wrestling with this, I just I turn off the radio. I was a radio guy. I was always listening to these podcasts or NPR or talk radio or something. I wasn't really a music guy. And I finally just said, you know what, I'm just going to turn off the radio. I got two hours a day that I can just pray and process and vent and frustrate and yell at God and all those things. And that's what I did. And it's what Jeff Spadafora called on, on the podcast with him, smoldering discontent. That's just a beautiful phrase. That's exactly what it was. And it was just these coals in my soul that just started getting fanned just a little bit. And work was great as far as, you know, all these boxes were checked. But the more I got into it and the more I, I spent time with God, the more unfulfilled I was. And it's very isolating uh, for a lot of people because when you can check off a lot of boxes as far as the American dream and you go, hey, Steve, um, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling satisfied, you know, the first response is buck up, buddy. You know, here I am living paycheck to paycheck and you're complaining about this. So what happens is you tend to isolate. You tend to say, wow, I must be selfish. I must be ungrateful. And so I, you just try to figure it out on your own. And so I walked through that process for a little while. Now, my spouse was with me along the way. I mean, she was awesome, and you'll hear more about her in a minute. She's just amazing. But outside of that, it was just very internal. And um, so I'm going through this for probably a year or two years, and I get a call from a private equity firm in downtown Dallas, and they say, hey, we bought a company in Houston. Would you be willing to come and run it? We want to interview you. And so, of course... I thought, wow, a change of scenery. Maybe that's what I need. It's just a change of scenery, uh, a new, a new boss, a new environment, a new culture. And uh, looking back, that's really stupid, but that's what I thought at the time. And uh, so I went and interviewed with the partners for a few hours. Had a great interview. I'm on my way home to Arlington, and I'm praying through it. And it just hit me: I don't want to be president of of a company. <laughs> and I, I wish I would have figured that out before I went through an interview for three hours. But I was like, eighty percent of that job, I'm going to hate. And I was in line to be general manager of our food safety division at Ecolab, which is very similar. And I knew I was going to hate that. And I had seen too many 55-year-olds that had taken that next step and lost their family, lost their marriage, lost their health. And I just, I just said, God, I don't think I can do this. And so I'm like, what do I do? I mean, God, this is what I've worked for in my career and here are this, these two opportunities, this general manager and this run a, private equi- or run a company for a private equity firm. Again, everybody would say, Paul, this is, this is perfect. What are you doing? But I just I didn't feel right about it. So I began praying, going, God, if this isn't for me, what do you have? I'm, I'm at my wits end here. I don't know. And he very clearly said to me, Paul, you need to wrap your mind around leaving Ecolab. And... I don't know about you, but that's, for a type A driven person, that's pretty ambiguous. I was like, you know, tell me to leave July 
2014 on a Thursday or, you know, tell me to leave after my kids go through college. Be more specific. But this wrap my mind around, I don't get it. And a typical guy, you know, I, I did, I, the next day I said, okay, God, I wrap my mind around it. What's next? Did you, did you tell Marianne? <laughs> uh, I did. Uh, not, not immediately, but pretty close to, you know, one or two days. And I said, and she's like, okay. Uh, what does that mean? I go, I don't have any idea. So I just began praying, God, what does that mean? And the first thing that came to my my mind was we needed to financially adjust. Um, my wife was a school teacher in the public schools in Arlington, and um, we we never lived high on the hog. We didn't have these immaculate houses and cars and all that. I had some great mentors in my life saying, never spend what you make and, and all that. But but we definitely lived on my salary. And so I just had this feeling that God was going to either call me to a nonprofit where I wouldn't be making a lot of money or to something where I had to email people like you and say, hey, could you support me every month? I just I just had this feeling it was going to be like that. And so we began to just whittle down everything we could financially. We got rid of TV, which was awesome. Um, we lowered our insurance premiums. We refinanced our house. We paid off a chunk of it. We refinanced it. We didn't go out to eat as much. I mean, just everything we could do. I didn't go buy a new car because my 10-year-old car was fine. Um, all those things. And so in <clears throat> and during that time, I applied for my doctorate. I thought I might really want to teach. I love teaching and facilitating and I said, okay, maybe I could teach in management or marketing, and so I applied for my doctorate. I didn't know if that was God's God's doing or not, but I just went ahead and did it. And in January of 2012, uh, we had financially adjusted. We were living on my wife's salary and putting my salary in savings. <clears throat> and I said, okay, God, I've I've financially adjusted. Now what? And then it was identity. And I'll tell you, I it was a lot easier to financially adjust. <laughs> Then it was to begin to have God get the sandpaper out on the rough edges of your identity. And what do you mean by that, Paul? Well, it's I haven't arrived at identity, so don't hear that by any means. But God was just very clear going, Paul, your identity is in your corner office and your title and your stock options, and the list goes on. And I said, No, God, I've really worked hard at that not being my identity. And he goes, No, it is. And as I walked through the next 60 days, it was just so evident, the pride and arrogance in my life that I did enjoy. Not, not, not that enjoying those is bad, but my identity was tied to those. And he said, your identity has to be in me. I am the only one that's permanent. I'm the only one that's eternal. And don't, don't move from work to your identity and your spouse and don't move it to your kids. Move it to me. And so those 60 days... Those next 60 days were just a, a, an emotional time, a time of just humility, a time of humbling, a time of, of just some pretty incredible spiritual growth. What was, that, what, uh, Paul, what made that so emotional? Um, God, it's emotional now just talking about it because it was so powerful. I, I think because you're having to unlearn 20 years of stuff that you've learned in the marketplace. And... And not that everything you learn in the marketplace is bad by any means, but some of those things you see, those other executives and other things, their identity is who they are and how much they make and how much power they wield and, and what kind of status they have and all that kind of stuff. And you're exposed to it and, and you try to protect yourself from it in a lot of ways, which I, I, I was trying to do, but it was just so easy to creep in and it's so temporary. And... um. So I just, 
I just began to 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 be quiet. I, I kept the radio off. I kept spending those two hours a day of just of just crying out to God, and and that just really began to shape that shape who I was. And I began to see. I haven't arrived at this, but I began to see what it meant to have identity in God versus identity in something that's temporary. How do you help somebody who's listening, who's in that same spot? And I could see that that was just uh, emotional for you because we're on video here too. And how, how do you help them if they really are just on their heart to move in that direction, to take those steps? Um, I think one thing is you have to, you have to come to the understanding that your identity probably is not in him. And that sounds really simple, but for me, I would have never told you that my identity was in my, my job. I would have said, no, you know, I, I understand a lot of people do that, but, but my identity is not, and it was. And so I think part of it is the realization, coming to the realization that it is in your job. And so that's part of it. And I think the other thing is beginning to see who you are in Christ. I mean, really who we are. And Sometimes that's real cliche and we say that, but to really understand that there is nothing else I can do to have God love me more. Nothing. He, he loves me as, as much as he possibly can 20 years ago as he does today. And it doesn't matter how I perform and what I do. And, and that, that takes time. And so for each person, it's different. Um, but, but those are probably two of the, the foundational elements of that. So once that identity started shifting, you're having this, you're driving in your car, you're having this time with God. What did you notice? For me, I noticed there was, there began to be joy. It wasn't there yet, but there began to be this, this simmering, this glimmer of, of joy and of hope. And um, I think that was, that was the biggest thing. What, what kind of joy was that? You know, I think for me at that point, it's probably different now, but at that point, it was joy in knowing that God has me on a journey. Because I really wanted to, I was like, God, tell me what's next. I, I, if I'm not happy at Ecolab, it must be something else. If I just found a different company or a different culture. And I got away from that, and I was just being able to realize that God is just as, uh, um, he's just as, uh, well, I don't even know what the word is. He's He's just as... Um, uh, I don't know what the word is. He he cares just about as uh, much as about the journey that you're on, as the destination. And so I think in this time of, of reflection, I began to realize that this journey, there's joy in the journey, and it's not just this next job or this next whatever. That there's joy in the journey, and that's what gave me a little bit of hope. So that small shift in perspective, really just kind of freed you up, is what I'm hearing. Yeah, it did. And, and what it led to was April 15th, 2012. Uh, it was a Sunday night. I remember it like it was yesterday. It's 1030. And I'm praying like a lot of times going to bed just saying, all right, God, you know, you're working on my identity. What's what's going to be the challenge tomorrow? You know, and <laughs> and uh, as clear as God has ever spoken to me, he said, Paul, you need to leave Ecolab and you need to leave tomorrow. And uh, I I was kind of like, come again, <laughs> you know, what, what is that? And uh, it just kept coming to my spirit over and over. And so, of course, I, my wife's asleep next to me, and I, I wake her up, and I say, Marianne. And she's like, what? <laughs> and I go, 
I really think God is telling me to leave Ecolab, and he wants me to leave tomorrow. And she goes, great. And she turns back over and goes to sleep. (laughs) 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 And I'm like, all right, I'm sorry. And I tap her. I said, man, I'm going to need a little more than that. And she goes, what? She goes, why are you hesitant? She goes, this is what you've been praying for. It's clear direction for the last nine months. And she goes, that sounds pretty clear to me. And I said, well, I'm hesitant because I thought, and this is just proof that my identity was not quite in Christ, right? Because this is incredibly prideful. I said, I thought I was going to be leading to something really cool. Like I'm going to go lead a nonprofit. I'm going to go get my doctorate and be a professor. I said, I'm leaving because God told me to. And I said, that won't go out over well at Ecolab. I said, I will be ridiculed. And I don't know about you guys, but you know when you're when every once in a while the Holy Spirit sounds just like your wife's voice? That <laughs> this this was one of those moments. And she looked at me at ten thirty, you know, it's about ten forty five at night, and she goes, Let me get this straight. And I was like, Oh no. <laughs> she said, First of all, um, it's the truth. And she just let that simmer for a minute. That's all she said. It's the truth. And I was like, Yes, it's the truth. And she goes, second of all, when have you ever cared what people thought, especially when it came to obeying God? Ooh, snap. And I didn't answer that one. I just kind of let that simmer. And then she goes, and third. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. She goes, what an incredible testimony it would be to the people at Ecolab. You're worried about being ridiculed, but what about the testimony that God has in store for you to share this story with people there. And then she turned over and went back to bed. And I got to wrestle with that all night. I didn't sleep at all. I'm wrestling with these three things that Marianne challenged me with. And also reminding God of all the things he forgot, like what about health care? And, you know, what about can we really live on my wife's salary? And, you know, all those things that, you know, he had covered, but I had to make sure he had covered. And by 6.30 the next morning, I, I was... I physically, I think I would have had to go to the hospital had I not quit. I mean, it, it was just so overwhelming by the Holy Spirit. So I drove, I drove into work. I, I called my boss and said, hey, we need, to, we need to meet for lunch. He thought it was just going to be a project update. I, I meet with him. I tell him exactly the story I just told you guys. And uh, he goes, are you kidding me? <laughs> and I'm like, no. He goes, well, where are you going? I go, I have no idea. He goes, you mean you don't have a job? And I said, no. And he goes, well, how stupid. I mean, he just went off on this. That makes no sense. What about all your unvested stock options? And we're going to get the biggest bonus we've ever got of the year. We're the fastest growing division. And he just went through all these financial things and all this stuff. And I go, Scott, I said, I, I've thought this through. And I said, here's where I've landed. God has always been faithful in my life. And I have to believe he's going to be faithful in this, even though it makes no financial sense, even though it doesn't make sense on a lot of levels, I've I've got to do this. And we talked for an hour and a half about it, going back and forth. And then I I gave a six-week notice, and um, I had a friend tell me kind of what Marianne said, that third statement that she said is, he goes, hey, you need to get ready for a lot of God conversations. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, when somebody at your level who they know is smart and successful, does something incredibly stupid in their minds, mm-hmm. they're going to ask you about it. They can't rectify it in their mind. And so, sure enough, he was right on. I mean, I had over 60 conversations in that six weeks uh, sharing the gospel, telling my story. Unfortunately, more conversations than I had in the 10 years I was at Ecolab. Um, 
But because of the vulnerability, and I was very uh, transparent when I said why I was leaving, I told people this story. There was an authenticity and vulnerability that they felt they could share with me. So I was able to just minister in only a Holy and Spirit God way during those six weeks about what what in the world? Why would God call you? Even non-Christians saying, why would God do that? That makes no sense. And um, it was just a powerful time. And, and during that six weeks, um, I ran into a friend of mine, and he said, hey, how's Ecolab? <laughs> and the poor guy didn't know what was about to hunt. I just said, I don't know. I said, I'm leaving. I'm confused. I don't have a plan for my life. And God told me to leave. And he just started laughing. He goes, Paul, you're in halftime. And I go, I don't even know what that means. And he goes, you're in halftime. There's a book written by Bob Buford. You need to read it. And there's an organization behind the book called the Halftime Institute. And he had gone through the same thing. He goes, I went through it three years ago. And he goes, it changed my life. And so I went home that night. I looked at the website. I watched every video. I read every blog. And I'm like, this is it's like reading my email. And so what year is this? This is uh, May 2012, not long after your your stuff, uh, Steve, because when I heard your podcast, I was like, man, we were going through the same craziness in the same yeah. amount of time. And so uh, I sent you know, a, a contact form in from the website and talked to Greg Murtha, and he called. And so I left Ecolab May 31st, 2012, and I was in a, a, a Halftime Institute launch event with 12 other individuals on June 4th, five days after I left. You know, as you went through halftime, Paul, you know, a lot, a lot of people think of halftimers of people that have sold companies and have some very significant financial resources, but that's not the situation you were in at all, right? No, it's not. In fact, um, I really believe now looking back that, that God saved me from some of that. And, and let me explain that because um, the golden handcuffs had been firmly attached to me about three years earlier, three or four years. And you know, in those big companies, they have a lot of long-term incentives so that you stay and, and you can build a lot of wealth that way. And uh, I I was just in the starts of the, the starting stage of that. And so to leave, that's what my boss kind of went crazy with. He goes, you're walking away from a lot of money. And I go, I realize that, Scott. So for me, no, I, I did have a few options that vested, but God in his great sense of humor, you know, when I left uh, Ecolab stock was at its all-time high, so I actually exercised those options. And one year to the day later, they were double. So um, God's just saying, I just want to make sure, Paul, you know I have this. And so, no, I am not one of those. And, you know, a lot of our clients at halftime are, you know, they everybody thinks they're just, you know, independently wealthy or anything. It's not It's not that. They're, they're, the, our client is... Typically, yes, very successful marketplace leaders, but it's really more about availability than it is about affluence. And uh, for me, uh, I, I made myself available for this time in my life to just get away for a little while, take a pause, and go to the Halftime Institute and, and figure out what this next step looks like. And what did that look like? What was the clarity that you really needed? You know, for me, um, we talk about that it, it's a head and a heart journey. That it's most people come into the Halftime Institute program, and I did the exact same thing, is what am I going to do next? Um, very natural thing, right? But what, it, what I learned very quickly through that two-day launch event, through being with 11 other, 12 other individuals that are in the same stage of life, and then being coached, I mean, that's really where the, the secret sauce is, is the one-on-one -on -one relationship, is that it's about who you need to become first, so God can call you to what's next. 
And that was really an epiphany for me. Well, my coach said this. He said, Howard Thurman said this. He said, um, don't go find out what the world needs and go do that. Find out what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world needs is more men and women that are fully alive. And that changed my life because um, I, as a business leader, I wanted to go find out what was needed, right? That's what you do. You go find the market need and it's not there and I'm going to go solve it. And for me to find out what made me come alive was a completely different question. And so me and my coach began to work on, you know, who I am at the core, what's unique about me. And not only strengths, that's part of it, because at first I kind of rolled my eyes going, okay, I've done Strengths Finder, I've done DISC, I've done Myers-Briggs, blah, blah, blah. But it was combining that with your passions. And that was the real key for me is because the passions are what make come you, help you come fully alive. And so that was a process for me of about six months of, of not only figuring out who I was, but also um, the, the spiritual journey that went with that. What I found is I needed rest. Hmm. I just needed rest. And um, so I, I gave myself permission, which was very hard to do, that I need to rest because here my wife is – you know, bringing in the, the money for us to live, teaching 24 first graders every day. And here I am sitting in a hammock thinking about my life. And uh, I felt How'd really, that work for you. Well, at first it was really it was really <laughs> hard because I said, Marianne, I, I'm feeling really guilty. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm married way above my pay grade. And she said, Paul, she goes, this is work. You're not getting a paycheck for it, but this is work. You need to give yourself permission to do this and you need to know I don't care. I want you. Oh. I don't feel guilty. You don't feel guilty because of me because it's not me. So so basically get over that. And that's what I needed. She didn't make me feel guilty. I made myself feel guilty. And when that happened, I was able to say this season of my life, I'm going to focus on what's next and who I need to become to in order to do that. How freeing was that for you to have uh, your, uh, to have to have her come alongside you like that? It's one of the most freeing things ever. I mean, really. I mean, outside of just under, you know, having glimpses of when you, you know, when you have those moments, Steve, where you're just overwhelmed by the grace of God. I mean, that's completely freeing. But outside of that, it was probably one of the most freeing moments I've ever had. And again, it wasn't. It wasn't because she was. That was totally self guilt. It was. It was Satan, <laughs> provide you know, making me feel guilty that I wasn't performing and I wasn't. Uh, whatever, whatever guy thing you want to put in there. I just wasn't doing that. And for her to say that just really, really freed me up to uh, do what I feel like God has called me to do at that moment. I remember Lloyd talking on the interview that we did with him, Paul, that one of the biggest, you know, I asked him, one of the, one of the biggest struggles that some people, you know, have when they, you know, go through halftime that don't really come out the other side would really with this calling and this purpose. And there was two things. He talked about slowing down to figure out who you want, who you are, and who you need to be. And the other one he really talked about is the marriage and in, in involving your spouse in this process. Uh, you know, what advice do you have in that area? Because I, I think a lot of people are hearing this, going, "Your wife is amazing. I'd love yeah. to have a relationship like that." And I'm sure there was a lot of very healthy things in place that allowed that conversation to happen. Yeah, it's it's especially now coaching clients through halftime, I would say 50% do not have a supportive spouse, at least at first. And I, I just, 
I can't imagine going through the process I went through without a, the support that she gave me. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable for her to have the ability to say, eh, we'll figure it out. God's in charge. I mean, she's, that's, that's not normal response. <laughs> I don't, I don't think. And so, um, it's harder for me uh, many times to relate because I had a, such a supportive spouse and, um, it is, it is a huge deal, um, to have that spouse. And we have, we have, you know, sometimes we'll have coaching sessions with the spouse as well to help bring them into the journey. And we have ways to, to help that, that process come so they can come together on this. But uh, absolutely, it's one of the biggest hurdles that many of our clients have. Sounds like that's something you guys have developed a real expertise in working with because it's so common. Yeah, we have a we have a couples program that helps too, and and that that really is when one spouse is is in halftime, the season of halftime, and one is not, because again, if you're not in it, it's 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 a foreign thing and. It's like, what do you mean you're not happy? And and again, they kind of say, look at these boxes that are checked, and and you just need to get over it, and those kind of things. And so it's led by Lloyd and Linda both, and they break into groups. And so you, it, it's a, just a really powerful time. But it's something that's it's very serious, and you, and you have to get together to make sure that you do have this common narrative among you and your spouse to make it work. Now, you guys have very generously made the book available to our audience, and we've had. Uh, a significant number of people actually request a copy of the book, and um, uh, I, I hope a majority of people have, have read that book. So if somebody's read that book like you did, what what would you say is the next step of some things in there that really resonated with people? Well, you know, if somebody reads the book and, and they find themselves that they read it in like one sitting or two days, I mean, you know, really, really quick, um, that's a good sign that you're actually in the season of halftime. And what we found over the last 15 years is most people fail when they try to navigate this season uh, by themselves. Um, and many people that we work with, and I did for a while, is they try to manage it themselves, especially among marketplace you know, businessmen and women. That's we got to where we are because we navigated stuff, you know, complex situations well. And this is a complex situation. So, dead gummit, if I just put my will and determination to it, I can do it. And, and it just, we haven't seen it work. It's worked on some occasions, but most of the time it doesn't. And so, what we've developed is, is there's a cohort of peers, you know, like you had, John, too, is, is eight to 12 people that are in the same stage of life. And the number one comment that we get from people is, it was so refreshing to know that I'm not the only one that's going through this. I felt so abnormal. I felt like I was the only one. And to know that there are a lot of people going through this as well was so freeing to them that there are other confused, lost people of what's next. And so to put to put you in a group of people and then to have somebody come alongside you and that has no other agenda except for you to navigate this successfully was for me was absolutely unbelievable. It was, you know, maybe because I had mentors in my life, and so I understood the value of that. But to have my coach come alongside me and just be my cheerleader and my truth speaker and my accountability partner and somebody that could ask some very disruptive questions that I didn't want to answer, but he asked them anyways, that was just absolutely critical. You know, I, I can so relate to what you said because, you know, you know, my story, I had an accident and I was recovering from all these you know, 20 plus surgeries that I had over years. And I knew God had saved my life for a reason. And, 
and I'm just seeking, you know, why did he save my life? And what am I supposed to be doing with my life? And what's my calling? And what's my purpose? And, you know, I had all this time. I was forced to have this time to rest. So I was able to listen to podcasts and read books and reach out to mentors. And I could not put it all together. And I was really struggling with it. It was when I was having lunch with a good friend of mine, Brian Chrisman. Uh, yeah. I think, you know, and he, he yeah. goes, dude, you're in halftime. I'm like, <laughs> I've heard, you know, I got two copies of halftime on my shelf at home. You don't need to give me another copy of the book. He goes, no, I'm giving you the copy of the book and you're going to read it this weekend. And you're <laughs> right. As soon as I started reading that book on a Saturday and it was hard for me to read, you know, one of my eyes is blind. Yeah. Um, but I literally over, I, I couldn't put it down. I could read for about a half hour and I'd have to let my eye rest for about an hour. And I'd read again, and I'd read again. And when I finished that book, I got back to to uh, Brian. I said, "What's next?" He goes, "You need to have you need to talk with Jeff Spadafora." Yeah. But honestly, being in a community of people that were actually trying to not only figure out the same things I was trying to figure out, but people who had actually been through that journey before to help you navigate it. To Jeff asked me questions that I would have never asked myself. Yeah. That like instantly got to the core of some of the issues I was working on that just gave me clarity, that just opened up all these new possibilities, and I'd move forward and get stuck again. But Jeff knew where I was going to get stuck. He was just waiting for me, and he was right there with a hand to just pull me up and out and and say, you know, let's go in this direction And until I got stuck again. And, and the exciting thing was, through that process, led me to exactly what I'm doing now. Uh, I wake up every single day totally fulfilled, full of joy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I didn't think just living like this was possible, you know, before my accident and all this occurred and I went on this journey. And so, um, you know, I, I would just really encourage anybody out there who's just read that book, even if you're halfway through it, um, just get on the, the phone with Paul just for a half hour, for an hour and just have a conversation, even if it's just to help you just get clear on just a couple of these beginning issues um you know no commitment to jump into the halftime institute i'm a huge proponent as you know but um because you know my passion is to help leaders find their calling and their purpose uh, equip them to be able to live out that calling and have the courage to move in that direction right you know, and anything I can do to just help people in that piece of their life, that journey, that is one of the most fulfilling things that I get to be a part of with what I'm doing right now. Well, one of the things I've learned too, John, is, and I've seen this not only in my life, and I think you guys, have, both you and Steve have seen it as well, but in, in my clients' lives that I coach, is God uses every single thing from your first half of life to fuel your next season of life. I've seen it over and over. I mean, all the things, I mean, God using your accident, you know, God using the, the tragedy of my dad dying and all those things and the, the experiences at Ecolab and Guidestone and all those things and relationships and success and failure and tragedy. He uses every single part of that. And I use it every day now in what I do at the Halftime Institute, every single day. And I don't know if this is going to be the next 40 years or five years or 10 years. I don't know. But like you said, I'm in the most joyful spot I've ever been in. And uh, it's just it's, it's a privilege and an honor to, to be a part of that and to walk through those, that process to get me to this point. So, you know, if you're listening to this, what I would tell you is that life that you want to create for yourself, that life that's just filled with just these amazing relationships and the sense of purpose and, 
you know, just waking up every single morning, looking forward to the day, no matter what storms you're in, because those are always going to come. Um, the thing that really gave me a lot of hope and encouragement, you know, as I was going through that process is there's people that have done it, gone through it before and have actually found something I honestly early in this process didn't think was achievable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Well, you know, as we wrap up here, Paul, any, any just final thoughts you'd like to leave with folks? You know, two verses that really stuck out to me during my journey, and it's from the message paraphrase, um, were Galatians 6, 4, and 5. And this really meant a lot to me in this journey, and hopefully this can help your listeners as well. It says, make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you've been given, and then sink yourself into it. And I love that phrase, right? Is First of all, find out who you are, and it's a careful exploration. It's not just something you go take a test real quick. I mean, make a careful exploration and the work you've been given, because we've been given work. But then sink yourself into it. Don't just do it. Sink it. I love the word sink. And then it says, don't be impressed with yourself and don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. And what I love about that is if you do make a careful exploration of who you are and you sink yourself into it, guess what? You're going to be really, really good at it because it's how God's wired you. So what does Paul say? All right, so don't be impressed with yourself. <laughs> and don't compare yourself to others because you can say, well, man, John and Steve are doing podcasts every week and they're reaching thousands of people and I'm not doing that. It doesn't matter. That's what God's called you to do. So I can't compare myself. It's an identity thing. And I don't want to be impressed with myself because God's uniquely wired me to do what I've been called to do. And then he says, so you take responsibility for doing your creative best. And that's just that was just so overwhelming for me as I was going through this journey. And so I hope for the same way to your listeners, it's, a, it's an encouragement as well to take the journey and see what God has in store. So, uh, Paul, as we wrap up here, just any cl final closing thoughts you'd like to leave people listening to this? Yeah, for me, I, one of the things that meant the most to me during my halftime journey was this one-page document I got from a pastor at our church called I Am a Child of the King. And as I wrestled with uh, my identity, this is what really cemented it for me. And so if you don't mind, I'd love to just read it to the audience. Yeah, go ahead, please. Great. I am a child of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. I am chosen, accepted, and included, a citizen of heaven and a member of God's household. I am loved by God unconditionally and without reservation. I belong to him having been bought by him with the precious blood of Jesus. I have eternal life and will be saved from all of God's wrath to come, guaranteed. I am a Christian. I am not just different in what I do. My identity has changed. Who I am has changed. Everything has become brand new. I am a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. I have access to him anytime, anywhere, for any reason. I am God's creation his workmanship. I was created by him and for him. So who I am and what I do matters. I am spiritually alive. I have been set free from the fear of death and have been given life to live and enjoy to the full. I am forgiven completely, totally, and absolutely. 
I have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the sun. I have been set free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. I am an enemy of Satan and at war with spiritual forces of evil, but greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. If God is for me, it doesn't matter who or what stands against me, because nothing and no one can separate me from the love of Christ, not hurt, pain, loss, problem, or brokenness, not persecution, trouble, difficulty, or danger, not abandonment, abuse, addictions, or appetites, not desires, food, sexuality, or relationships, not life or death, angels or demons, not my past, the present, or the future, no power, no person, no place, not anything in all creation, not even Satan himself shall prevail. I am in the hands of Jesus, in the hands of God, and nothing and no one can snatch me out of God's hands. I will fear no evil because God is with me and he has promised to never leave me nor forsake me. God's presence is with me everywhere I go, to the heights of heaven, through the valley of the shadow, to the ends of the earth, forever and always. I am a child of the King and choose this day to live as one. Paul, when you started this interview, one of the things that you had said was, you found out very early on in your life, there is a God, He cares for you, and there is a purpose for your life. And I think that's just a great way to wrap. So, thanks, man. Absolutely. Thanks, Steve. If you'd like a copy of that prayer slash declaration that Paul just read, go to our show notes, eternalleadership.com slash 063. That's eternalleadership.com slash 063. And there we'll have that PDF, Paul's bio, a link to get the halftime book, all that, and a lot more, eternalleadership.com slash 063. And as always, that link is embedded in the summary of this MP3. Now, that PDF is great because nearly every line has a corresponding scripture verse that you can study and reference at your leisure. I love it. Some of you will like to read what Paul just read, but others of you are going to want to listen and re-listen. So we wanted to give you all an easy way to re-listen to it whenever you want to. So I recorded it, threw some music under it, and we're going to add it to this podcast feed. You may have noticed it when you downloaded this episode. So let us know if you like that. You can contact us on Facebook, facebook.com slash eternal leadership, on Twitter at eternal leaders, or on LinkedIn through our private LinkedIn group. Just type eternal leadership into the search box. Next time on Eternal Leadership, former professional soccer player and the author of Burn Your Goals, The Countercultural Approach to Achieving Your Greatest Potential, Jamie Gilbert. I think there's a big difference between competing and comparing. Comparing is all about, you know, being better than somebody. But competing is about getting better. And so I, th I think it's the same in sports and in business. Instead of getting into this place where we're ranking human beings, um, we're, we're actually starting to look at people who do stuff that, we, that really resonates with us and say, how did they do that? What's at the base of that? Something about burning your goals just really resonates with me. Jamie is one cool dude. We love his heart and we love who he is. You're going to really like this one. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership. Eternal Leadership.